I'll be seated. <clears throat> okay. Um, this is really the second sermon looking at Genesis 22, 1 through 19. So I'd ask you to turn there. If you were not here for the first one, uh, it is important that you understand that I am not dealing with every aspect of this text today. Last week I dealt with the uh, Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac as a model for us in our faith, love, and obedience. This week we're going to look at the, the love of the Father... And next week, we're going to look at the love of Christ in this. So it almost is a whole trinity. When you think about our devotion, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Today, we're going to look at the Father. Next week, look at the work of the Son. So keep that in mind. And I wonder, as you just sang the doxology, if you thought that I am absolutely enthralled with the love of the Father. And do I believe that the love of the Father was expressed in the giving of his Son? And what I mean by that, we read John 3.16 in the scripture reading, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. But could it not also have read... For God so loved his son that he gave his only begotten son. Jonathan Edwards, a, uh, one of the greatest theologians America has ever produced, wrote this. The infinite happiness of the Father consists in the enjoyment of the Son. Wow. One of the fundamental principles of love is that it seeks the good of the one loved. This is why it can never truly be loving to encourage someone to continue in sin. Because sin is not to someone's ultimate good. The acceptance of sin is not, in another, is not a loving thing. Just throwing that out at the beginning of this. This is not really the the focus of this message, but just to hear that in our culture today, it's often said, in order to love someone, you have to accept their sin. It's, it's, It's false love. 
The one who patiently and persistently seeks the true good of others is the one who is most loving. Remember that as believers when you're accused of not being very loving. When we come to Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, can we honestly say that this is an act of love? Now, I understand that we can say that Abraham is loving God more than Isaac in this act, but can we actually say that as Abraham lifts the knife, that he is actually loving Isaac? I believe that we can. I believe that we must do this, believe this. If only to keep you from slandering God in your heart. I read last week a quote by Rachel Held Evans, and I'll read it again. Belief in a cruel God makes a cruel man. While I agree we can't go making demands and bending God into our own image, doesn't make sense to me that God, that a God whose defining characteristic is supposed to be love, would present himself to his creation in a, in a way that looks nothing like our understanding of love. If love can look like abuse, if it can look like genocide, if it can look like rape, if it can look like eternal conscious torture, well, everything is relativized. Well, Miss Evans would not be comfortable with me using Abraham in his willingness to sacrifice Isaac as a foreshadow of the father's love for his son. But I think that is precisely what the Bible does. So really two big points in this. The first is just going to be the point of trying to make that connection. The father's love for his son is revealed in Abraham raising the knife over Isaac. That's, that's a hard task, I and mean, that's going to take a good bit of the sermon trying to help you understand that. The secondly is the father's love for his son is the ocean of love into which we are made partakers. Now that's going to take a while to flesh that out, but basically it just means why does it matter to you? And it should very much matter to you. So I believe God is very explicit. He definitely wants us to connect Genesis 22 with Jesus hanging on the cross. That the first uh, way in which he makes that connection is to have the father speak to Abraham and explain in vivid terms Abraham's relationship to Isaac. So let's just go ahead and read the text again, and then we'll. And I want you to focus on in the beginning wh- how um, the father describes to Abraham his relationship with Isaac. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, and he said, "Here I am." He said, "Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah." And offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, and this is also going to be brought out in the, in the sermon here, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and said, and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, you can almost hear like, Daddy? And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. The first and most important connection is that language, your son, your only son. That language is used more than once in this text. He's using language that describes his own relationship to Jesus. Jesus is God's son, his only son. That's the language of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's the language. In Genesis 22, Isaac is presented as an obedient child. I know you can take that too far because Isaac's not the main focus. But there's nothing in Genesis 22 that would have made Abraham angry with his son. You know, God can get angry with us, right? He can punish us because of his anger, because of our sinfulness, our rebellion. Well, there's nothing in this text that would even give you the hint that God is, I mean, that Abraham is in any way displeased with his son. Nothing there. He's happy with his son. God, uh, I think this, this 
attitude of pleasure of Abraham and his son is reflected in the New Testament, both at Jesus' baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration, where the Father from heaven has his voice, and he says to the people surrounding Jesus, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. God tells Abraham that Isaac is his only son. Obviously, if you know the story so far, Abraham had another son, Ishmael. But God purposely removes Ishmael from the story so that Abraham can be in a situation where this is the only son. Again, I think to reflect, to foreshadow Abraham and Isaac's relationship with the father's relationship to Jesus Christ. The next connection in Genesis 22 is that in the cross we see that Jesus' death was not just a a death of any kind, but Jesus' death is portrayed to us as a burnt offering. In this text, God does not just say, hey, take Isaac and, and slaughter him. He is to slaughter him as a burnt offering, and it is to be done in the land of Moriah. Now, Moriah would not have meant anything to Abraham at the time, but if you go forward in Scripture to 2 Chronicles 3.1, we see that Moriah, Mount Moriah, is the very place in which the temple will be built. So we see God making a clear connection between what is happening here in the Abrahamic story with his future sacrifice of his son. We also see a connection here. If we ask the question, who really killed Jesus? Some people thought the Jewish leaders killed Jesus. They're certainly the ones that hated him and tried him. Others say that the Romans killed Jesus. Certainly it was Pilate who gave the order. Maybe it was the crowds that killed Jesus because they said, give us Barabbas. Was it Judas in his betrayal? Was it Satan who entered Judas? You see, but not one of these is sufficient to understand the meaning of the cross. The only way that the cross is rightly understood is to see it as the Father pouring out wrath upon his Son. The Father kills his son. It was the father of our Lord Jesus Christ who plunges the knife into the heart of his only beloved son. Isaiah 53 says it very well. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. So that connection is obvious. You have to look at the, the Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac and connecting it with the father's willingness to sacrifice his son. That is the connection in Scripture. Now the next question is very important. How can that actually be a loving act? And that is not easy. 
how can such an act, which we would normally say is, is horrendous, we're not for the sacrifice of children. How can this act be an act of love? Well, I'm going to make a case that it is. And that's why I used at the beginning here, John 3.16, for God so loved his son that he gave his only son. It's very true that we need to be able to say that. I believe that three things have to be in place, and they are in place both in Genesis 22 and in the cross to make this argument. There's three aspects, three things that must be true if this is going to be a loving act. The first thing that must be true is that the death of Christ must be necessary. The second is that the death of Christ must be temporary. And the third is that the death of Christ must be for the good of Christ. Beginning with the death of Christ is necessary. If there was any other way for humans to be saved... The love of the Father would have demanded that another way be chosen. If the same good could have been achieved by a different path, then it would not have been the Father's will to crush him. You know this to be true. No father would bring about suffering upon their child unless it was good and necessary. You see, death was the wages for sin. That had been determined. It was the required punishment then to cleanse men from their sin. Hebrews 9.22 makes this clear. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The cross was necessary to redeem sinful men. And I would argue that it was the, the, the... intended purpose of all three members of the Trinity to redeem sinful men. That was the the purpose. And so before going to the cross, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, yet nevertheless not my will but yours, he is actually saying, Lord, if there's another way to get to the intended goal besides the cross, let's do it. Necessary. It's not necessary for God to save. The cross wasn't necessary. But once God decided to save sinful men, the cross was necessary. And so I believe this sacrifice was necessary in the case of the father, of the son. And I believe that this is the reason why Abraham does not have to sacrifice Isaac. Because even though that there's a picture, there's a closeness, there is only the necessity of one son to be killed, and that is the son of the father. And so, of course, God says, no, 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 don't do this. I just want you to understand that I am going to have to do this. You need to understand that. That I am willing to do this for you. Abraham, you don't have to do it, because Isaac's not the one. But I will do this. Secondly, the death of Christ was temporary. Now, this is a struggle for us to somewhat because we understand that the punishment for sin is an eternal death. Anyone who is not in Christ will have to suffer eternity apart from God. Danny's teaching that in his Sunday school class. 
Yet the punishment that was placed upon Jesus was temporary. And depending on how you look at it, you could say that the punishment on Jesus lasted three hours or three days. I tend to think three hours. But it was temporary. And the only reason why it was able to satisfy God's justice for an eternal hell is because even though Jesus dies in his human body, his human body is attached to his eternal sonship, and therefore the temporary sacrifice had eternal value. But I am telling you that the Father, as he is crushing his son, knows that this is temporary. He knows that he's going to raise him up from the dead. He knows that he's going to lift him up to the highest place in the universe. He knows that he's going to be given the name above every name. And so even as he is crushing his son, he is loving his son because he knows that it is temporary and it is serving a necessary purpose. In fact, if the death of Jesus Christ was a permanent death, it would not be a loving act. I would even go so far as to say, I wouldn't want God to do it. Could you imagine? Oh, I get to be with God for eternity, but his son has been forever severed from the fellowship of God the Father? Better me suffer an eternity hell and the Trinity stay together than that happen. So it is, it is necessary It is temporary, and it is also very purposeful. It has good to the sun. I skipped over something here, just in the back, the temporary aspect. In the story, you should see that Abraham himself believes that even killing his son would be temporary. Because he says, I and the boy will go, we will worship, we will come back. So whatever happens as he raises that knife, he even understands that it will not be permanent. So I should have brought that out, sorry. What exactly was the father's motivation for plunging the knife into his own son? It was none other than to give his son a people for himself and to bestow upon his son all glory and honor. And that comes to Revelation 5, and you should should turn there and look with that with me. Revelation chapter 5. This is the fruit, this is the good that the father intended for his son even as he was crushing him. Revelation chapter 5. This is a a glimpse into the heavenly throne room. This is a a glimpse into what it will be like for us eternally uh, worshiping uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 9 of chapter 5. And they, redeemed people and angels, sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You realize that the Father and the Son and even the Spirit were thinking of this as they were crushing Christ. Even Jesus, when he was on the cross, endured the cross, scorning its shame because he knew that this would be the result of this. And so I believe the Father was actually acting in love towards his Son at the very moment that he was crushing him. And as we'll see next week, I believe that the Father was most pleased in the Son at the moment that he was crushing him. The love of the Father and the Son was not interrupted while he hung on the cross. He was achieving good for his Son. And this brings us to the second point. Why is this important? Why do we care? The Father's love for his Son is the ocean of love into which we are made partakers. I'll say that again. The Father's love for His Son is the ocean of love into which we are made partakers. The Father does not cease loving the Son in order to love you. Instead, the Bible portrays the love of the Father and the Son as eternal and unbreakable. It is an ocean of beauty and bliss And it is only the cross that enables sinful people to begin partaking of that ocean of love. Now let me try to help you understand this. At various times in my life, I have deeply wrestled with whether or not God could love me. I've wondered whether or not someone such as myself could receive the blessing of God. I know that I am unworthy to sit at the table and to enjoy the feast. And I know that I'm not alone because I've been a pastor for a long time and many of you struggle to know that love as well. Understanding what I'm starting to go through right now has helped me. Ephesians 1.6 says that God has blessed you, he has loved you in the beloved. That beloved is Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. God does not love me, does not bless me independent of Christ. I am loved and blessed because I'm in the beloved. And so somehow in my heart, I'm struggling to say, God, how can you love me? And then I go, but can I actually believe that you don't love your son? And my mind's like, oh, God forbid. Of course you love your son. Jesus was always pleasing to you. You love your son. And then I begin to hear, oh, what does faith in Jesus Christ do? It unites me to Jesus. And so the same love that you are having of your son, I'm brought into that. I'm a part of that. I get, so in order, if I start saying, God, you cannot love me, 
If I'm united to Jesus Christ, that's tantamount of saying that you don't love your son Jesus. So you have to begin denying union with Christ. And I know enough of my theology to know I can't deny that. I'm united to Christ through faith alone. And so God's love for me is the same eternal love that the, he has had in his, within the Trinity, the Father and the Son. And you say, okay, Michael, you're just bringing this all up, or you're just making this up on your own. Turn with me to John chapter 17. This is the high priestly prayer of Jesus before he goes to the cross. John chapter 17. And we learn a lot from the prayers of Jesus. And I'll just begin in verse 20. He's praying not only for his apostles, his disciples, but he's also praying for the rest of the world that would come to believe in him. So he says in chapter, verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Here you go, verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I give to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know, and here it is again, you sent me and loved them, how? Even as you loved me. What is the, the measure of God's love for you? It is his love for his only son. There's no, oh, he loved you and threw away his son, because if he threw away his son, then he could throw away you. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me, where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus received glory because he went to the cross, but it was a glory that he had from the beginning of the world. And the love of the Father was there at the beginning of the world. And you are being brought into that. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known, and here it is again, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. You see, somehow, separating the idea that God just loves me individually and, and, and then stepping into the idea that he loves his son, and I am brought into that, enables me to be smaller and God's love greater. And that's what we need. It's not about how special you are. The specialness is the love of the father of his son, and they have graciously brought you into that relationship. Unbelievable. If you have trouble enjoying God's love for you, understand that when you deny God's love for you, you are denying God's love for his one and only son. So don't be afraid. Even as Abraham holds the knife over Isaac, the love of the father is being revealed. 
The world's going to mock you for that. The world is going to hate you for that. They're going to slander the Father's love. And you need to say, no, it is the power of God for my salvation. Now one other aspect. I don't just want to fire you up for this moment and then on Tuesday morning, you're right back into it. So I want you to see in Genesis 22, the last verse, verse 19. Abraham, I think, has had this monumental event He has seen the love of God in a way he's never seen before. It is powerful. God's pleasure of him. All this kind of stuff. And then you get to verse 19. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Boy, is that just a downer. Don't you expect fireworks and like bliss and heavenly glory and everything to be awesome from here on out. I am never going to doubt the love of God again and everything's going to be great. No, you're just going to go on living. I hope that in your struggles, in your hardships, that you will understand the love of God a bit better for you. I hope that if we can see that God had good purposes for his own son to be suffering, then is it not possible that he can have good purposes for you as his children to also suffer as well? I'd make that suffering easier still hard, but I know in my own mind I start suffering and I think, oh, God doesn't love me anymore, doesn't love me anymore. Well, the love of of the father for the son was not interrupted while he was bruising his son. So just remember, when he's bruising you, he has good purposes. These are necessary things and they are temporary things. And maybe we can begin in our suffering to say, what then shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, none of them can separate us from the love of God. There's one other application to this that I want to end with. 1 John 4, 9-11 says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us. God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see, when we talk about the evil of this world, when we look at the, whether it be politics or corporations or just broken families, when we talk about the evil of this world, we are talking about people who are acting selfishly. It all boils down to that. Your God is a good God. He always loved his son. He always wanted good for his son. And when he redeems us, he loves us and wants good for us. And so our task is to emulate that. 
Our task is to go into the world and to try to be uh, little servants of doing good to others rather than living in selfishness. We should try to emulate that kind of love. We shouldn't walk in fear. We shouldn't selfishly say, oh, I want to have all the world continue, continue to make life good for me. We should forget about that so much, and we should be thinking about how can I love someone else? And when we do this, we bring glory to God, and we emulate the Lord Jesus Christ, and we emulate the Father. Jonathan Edwards said, the infinite happiness of the Father consists in the enjoyment of his Son. The beauty of the gospel is that he allows us to partake in that ocean of love. Amen.